you are listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanoski. The following is a faith conversation with Reverend Dr. Mitzi Minor, the Mary Magdalene Professor of New Testament at Memphis Theological Seminary. With 31 years in theological education, we talk about what education may look like in the future, with the only certainty is that theological training is and will change. Dr. Miner's journey includes a solid faith foundation within the Southern Baptist Church that nurtured and prepared her for both life and vocation. She shares with me how she became an ordained minister in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and has served both of its educational institutions, Bethel University and Memphis Theological Seminary. For full disclosure, I have known Dr. Minor since my teenage years, meeting her first on a youth mission trip and later as her student. Her approach to the world ministry and the scriptures has shaped my ministry and to this day though i am no longer her student i still call her dr minor and now dear friend here is my faith conversation with mitzi minor uh dr minor you are the mary magdalene professor of new testament And I want to open up with this question to gather your thoughts. Cumberland Road, my attempt is exploring faith journeys. And I had you in class and, of course, in your writings. You talk about the overlap, um, the connection between the New Testament and the spiritual journey and the faith journey. Could you elaborate more for me how we of the 21st century have more in common with the people of the New Testament than we realize. Yeah. First of all, thanks, TJ, for letting me be a part of this with you. And the opportunity to have a conversation like this with you is something I cherish. So thanks so much for that. And the opening question, um, given that uh, what I do is spend my days um, with my nose stuck in the pages of the New Testament, which (laughs) would make a lot of people go, ooh, and, and makes me go, yay. Um, yeah, it, it is, it's always been, my study of New Testament has always been more than my job. Um, I get to do work. Uh, I get to study New Testament. I get to teach it, you know, with my students like you and Melissa were, you know, once upon a time. And I get to do that work that isn't just work. It has also had a profound effect on my own spiritual journey because, you know, I'm studying away and I encounter something and and I'm astounded after all these years how often it still happens that I'll read something and I've never noticed that before or I've never made that connection before. Or I've never really put this maybe piece of first century information that I know in my head. I've never really put it in that story and let that story 
pop like it does once you do that until this particular moment. And I find myself with my mouth hanging open. <laughs> and um, and here is this new perspective, new insight, new challenge, new wisdom for me coming from this ancient text, an ancient text that I've studied a time, but which challenges me in terms of how I'm living my own life. Mm. Um, and, you know, as an example, this past semester, I was teaching the Corinthian letters uh, at the seminary. And as we all know, the war broke out in between Israel and Hamas, you know, kind of right in the middle of that semester. And so, you know, I'm working on Paul, a Middle Eastern guy, um, talking about his faith, talking to the Corinthian folks about their faith, uh, in a setting very close to where that war had broken out. And as we worked through that text, I I had a, I had this day when I remembered actually not something in the Corinthian letters, but in his letter to the Roman believers, where he talks about sin, but for Paul, it's not our so much our individual moral failures as it is this huge force in the universe that has us all in bondage and it leads to death. And all of a sudden one day I found myself saying to my students, look at what's happening. And you know, they're illustrating exactly what Paul was talking about because they've grown up with hate and fear. And that person is, a, is my enemy. And once that person is labeled as an enemy, then they respond to me as an enemy. And the hostility increases and the mistrust increases and the fear increases. And we live in that kind of world. And what, you know, and what are they doing with that? They're just producing death and death and death and death. And, and then, I, you know, I said, we've, we've been invited by what God has done in Jesus to live an entirely different way of life that leads to life. And it was one of those moments when Paul's teachings just sort of popped for me because of what was, you know, I'm looking at, you know, an awful situation in Israel and, and reading this text. And, you know, I, as I always say, I had a moment um, and a realization that we are really called to live in ways that are inclusive and welcoming and gracious and tender and forgiving and 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 where you know as i as i say to my students i think the new testament calls me calls us that every time i encounter another person every time in the grocery store in my neighborhood you know, in the convenience store where I stop for gas on the way home to visit my mother. You know, every time we encounter another person, our very first thought should be, here is another beloved child of God. And and think of how differently our world would, would operate if we did that. So not that, you know, whatever. If, if you're in Israel, it's not that Palestinian or that you know, Arab, or 
if you're one of if you're an Arab, it's not that Jew or that Israeli, you know, to use again that if my first response was, here is another beloved child of God. I mean, we're talking world peace here. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it really is in some ways that simple. And God is showing us that we're just a hard headed lot, aren't we? Yeah. But that study of the New Testament, you know, leads me to moments like that. And I realize I've been called to live in renewing and redemptive and creative and gracious ways. And that that impacts me and it impacts the world around me. And, and it leads to life. Doesn't our posture towards the biblical text, though, uh, open us up or even close us off to um, allowing it to, to speak to us and allowing for new discoveries? Because if I approach the biblical text, new or old or both, as in I'm searching for answers because I have a very particular issue or problem or, or I an argument to win or that sort of thing. I, I've narrowed my scope to where I can't look. I'm sort of answering my own question. <laughs> you can interrupt me, but I've narrowed, you know, my, my, my point of view, my lens from just seeing a very small niche of the vast field and forest of the scriptures. And I mean that in a beautiful sense or the richness and the variety there. Um, but I mean, I, I realize that temptation because I have fallen to that temptation time and time again. So I, I know we're moving a little bit away. We're going to jump right into your faith journey, but this is about faith journey Absolutely. In, this, in the sense that how do I avoid that temptation? So to allow the scriptures to speak, uh, when they're ready and where I, and, and when I can hear it or how I can hear it. Yeah, it's, it's a marvelous question. It's not just a good question, TJ. I think it's a marvelous question. And I doubt very seriously that there is a single answer to that question. But thoughts that went through my head as you were asking them revolve around a phrase I heard um, just about a year ago. Um, during COVID, um, when, you know, we were all home and uh, I needed to get out of the house. And so I started taking really long walks and I began to listen to podcasts. So um, you may remember, I'm not much of a techie. So this is kind of <laughs> venture into, you know, a new world, you know, for me. And, and I've enjoyed the heck out of that. And um, I often think, um, I, I wonder if my neighbors sometimes, you know, wonder about me because I'll be walking. And I'll hear something that's funny. I'll just be laughing out loud while I'm walking <laughs> in the street. But, you know, it's been it's been both physically very good to be out walking. And many of the podcasts I've listened to um, have been so thought provoking. But so with that context about last spring, I heard a podcaster. I did not write down who the interviewee was. And I, I and I'm so mad about that. So I can't go back and find it again, uh, at least not without some effort. But the person said that, that their, their sort of stance in life was to be open, curious, and willing to be surprised. Mm. And I love that phrase. Just generally speaking, I love that phrase. But I offer it to my students when we start study of New Testament. Rather than 
I already know what it says. I already know what this story means. I already know what the New Testament says I should believe. And uh, and many of us, because we've been in church all of our lives, which is a good thing, but it is easy to get, um, how would you describe it? To get, um, well, you know, folks use today the, the term echo chamber. You, yeah. You're kind of, you're in a place where everybody believes like you do and they think like you do. And so you just reinforce all of that. And of course, this is the way faith is. And so when it comes to, in my case, reading the New Testament, this is the way we read the New Testament. This is what it means. And, and we don't intend to, but it becomes that kind of approach to scripture. So uh, we go to scripture already expecting to find certain things as opposed to being open, curious, and willing to be surprised. Um, and when we're that, and this is my own experience, um, to be open, curious, and willing to be surprised for me has meant there is more there than I could have dreamed. Uh, when I began doing um, a New Testament study for my vocation, back as a graduate student in my 20s, uh, you may remember being in your 20s and talk about being prone to think you know everything. I certainly was that. Um, and boy, was I wrong, you know. Um, and, and you know, that, that uh, no, there is, there's just layers and layers. And, and it's not even just layers in the story. It's that as we grow and change, the story will resonate in different ways. The, the paragraph in one of Paul's letter will resonate in different ways. You, if, if you've never had the experience of one thing or another, you read a story and like it. But when you've had the experience, um, if, you've, if you've been a parent and had a child terribly sick, those stories of a Syrophoenician woman, of Jairus and his daughter, you know, had to take on depths of meaning that until you were different, you couldn't appreciate. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm in the middle of teaching a class last semester and a war breaks out. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing issues of life and death in Paul's letters differently as we watch the horrors, you know, unfold there. And and so that, yes, that how we approach Scripture with openness and curiosity and a willingness to be surprised, you know, and all of that for me also calls for humility, um, which is, I don't know everything. Um, I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did, for example. And then, you know, that kind of openness, here's this wisdom. I didn't even know to ask about. I didn't even know to look for. Um, if, if it were up to me to have said, I want to know this, I would have never gotten there because I didn't even know. And then you encounter it and it's like, oh, that's the word I needed to hear today. That's the story that I need to walk around with today. Um, and I didn't even know until I encountered the story with a sense of openness and curiosity and humility 
and so it becomes it, it's an it's 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 an incredible thing to think about in the case of the New Testament, two thousand years. You know, and, and of course when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about eight thousand years. Eight thousand <laughs> right. years, you know, maybe, right? And and today we need a new cell phone because this one's, you know, like, you know, fifteen months old. Right. And, you know, <laughs> and and we need a new whatever. You know, we are the latest and the greatest kind of a society. And the idea that old things matter is kind of not us. Mm-hmm. And yet here is this sacred text, 2,000 years old. And for those willing to be open, curious, and willing to be surprised, it keeps popping up wisdom and treasure and insight and aha moments. Um, I, you know, I, you can tell I, I get a kick out of what I get to do, right? <laughs> Dr. Miner, can you um, can you recall an early exposure, an aha moment with the biblical text, with the with the Bible? Was it early? Was was it someone reading to you? What was that like? Um, yes, and and the answer to your questions there are yes. My dad um, read to me. Uh, when I was, you know, a little, little girl, we had a, a book that was, um, that took, you know, the Bible stories and, and wrote them for children. I, mm-hmm. I, I think it was actually called the children's book of the Bible or something like that. And, and, <clears throat> and, you know, so Joseph in his many colored coat, you know, for example, you know, but yeah, that, so, oh, so it had ah. illustrations in it as well. Yes. Kind of, yeah. 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 So here's a story for you. When I was, I would have been about um, third grade, I think. I was in vacation Bible school at my church and we're coloring, you know, Joseph's coat in, in Bible school. And the teacher of the class, you know, we're all, you know, colored away. <laughs> and the teacher of the class, you know, says, who's humming? Somebody's humming. And I love that. That means they're happy. And it was me and I didn't even know it. <laughs> you know, my, you know, my friends started going, it's Nancy. It's Nancy. You know, I was like, <laughs> and then I was, of course, a little embarrassed, but. You know, that was that and, and the other funny thing about that was I was I was coloring the stripes so they were vertical mm-hmm. on his coat. Everybody else in my class was making them horizontal. I thought, hmm. <laughs> even all these years later, like, what does that say? <laughs> but yeah, so early on from church, from my dad reading, you know, those stories when I was a kid and that whole saga of Joseph, you know, if if you can tell it you know, if you can tell it for a four or five year old to kind of get wrapped up in the story, that's quite a story, you know, to follow for several days. But I also remember very distinctly when I was about 16 or 17. I don't even know why. I don't know what prompted this at all, but I opened the book of Acts and started reading. And that doggone thing read like a novel. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just kept reading. I was kind of astounded that all these things happened to all these people, you know, and it, it read like a novel and I was kind of captivated by that. And um, I think ever since then, so all of that's in, you know, in my growing up, you know, I've, I've had this sense of connection, you know, to the New Testament, you know, 
which doesn't make me unique. I think lots of us have a sense of connection to the New Testament. And this was sort of where mine came. And then when I began to have a sense of call to do a PhD and become a New Testament professor, I, you know, I, I suppose a lot of folks, you know, would, would go again, ooh, you know, <laughs> and, and I was like, yippee. <laughs> so um, the, the studying part of that and taking comprehensive exams, not so much, but, uh, but getting to, you know, kind of hang out in the New Testament was, was fun. Yeah, I, I was, I was incredibly lucky in my, in my growing up years and getting introduced to those stories and um, learning to love the stories from early on, you know, and I'm very grateful to those folks that enable that, including my parents, but um, some, some really good Sunday school teachers, Bible school teachers, you know, folks. So for those of who may be listening, who do those kinds of things, look, that work matters. That work really matters. <laughs> good for you guys. Uh, was there a, po- a point in your, um, your walk of faith where you, you felt like that the relationship with God was real, tangible, um, made, well, I'll finish my thought, but, uh, where it made sense, but I don't know if it, from a pragmatic point of view, uh, from a worldly point of view, certainly, uh, a relationship with God probably looks different as an outsider looking in. But anyway, I at least wanted to finish my thought. I'm sure folks will, uh, clear me up right and ready on, on that. But no, there's gotta, for those who have been part of the, who haven't been part of the faith and came to it later as an outsider looking in, it looks a bit odd. And then that time from time to time, we bumble it as we try to articulate through words, what a relationship with God is like from the day to day point of view. Um, all right, bail me out. I've kind of lost my train of thought of where I was going with this. Oh, um, when the relationship with God through Jesus Christ became something real for you and informed your your life experience? You know, I don't know that I can point to a moment. Um, I read once uh, in a description of, of young people coming to faith um, that... You know, we tend to want to tell the stories of, um, particularly again, young people who, you know, get lost along the way and, you know, end up, you know, doing pretty destructive things for their lives. And then one way or another, they have an encounter uh, with a a wise teacher or a friend who is uh, faithful and and they, they become you know, or, or come back to, as the case may be, you know, to their church settings or they, you know, go to a camp in the summer because they didn't have anything else to do. And it ends up having a profound, you know, experience, you know, profound effect on their lives, something like that. You yeah. know, and we love those stories and I love those stories, but I, that wasn't me. Um, I read and again, I talked about reading his description. There's there are kids for whom that is the experience and a whole lot of kids who grow up in church, who leave and then come back at some point. And, and again, we find out those seeds that were planted really do matter. 
um, and they come back and, you know, for whatever reason, their own lives are, um, have become, you know, troublesome to them or they've become parents and they want their kids to have the experience they did or whatever the case may be. And again, that wasn't me. I never left. Um, and so part of the description in this particular book was but that some kids are what they call emergers. They just kind of keep on and faith emerges as they keep on. And that really describes me. I, ne I never left. I didn't have a wild side. I didn't uh, wander from faith and do destructive things for a while. And then, right. you know, like the prodigal son, come to myself and come back. I didn't. You know, I didn't do that. I, I stayed. and There's still plenty of time as, for that. Huh? There's still what? plenty of time for that. <laughs> um, except I'm way too old for that now. I guess. <laughs> but, but, you know, and I'm, I, I'm really, I'm really grateful, you know, for that. It was, um, which, which I don't want to make it sound like that meant faith was easy for me. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't have a rebellious phase, I guess is, I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, it was always meaningful to me. Um, uh, I was um, always, I mean, from a, I'm one of those folks that from uh, a very young age had a sense of God's presence. And again, I, I can't, there wasn't a, something that happened. It, it was just there. Mm -hmm. um, a theologian Dorothy Zerla actually says most kids do. And we sort of get it out of them as they, you know, get older. Um, I do have a very significant memory of going from, I mentioned, you know, Sunday school and Bible school in my childhood years. And when I was seventh grade, you know, and at that point, this is before they did middle school, I went to junior high school. And, and in my church, I went from the children's Sunday school program to the youth program. And the children's Sunday school program had been just so much fun. All those stories and we. You know, we drew and colored, like I said, and we acted the stories out and we sang all the songs. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and, all you know, those things that it was, you know, it was very imaginative and very creative. And then I got to seventh grade and I switched to a new Sunday school class and we sat around the table and talked about doctrine. And I remember thinking, what happened? <laughs> and I went from loving Sunday school to hating it. You know, it was just boring. And why am I here? Mm -hmm. So that's something I, <clears throat> that's something I think we get wrong um, in terms of being creative and imaginative and inviting and fun, you know, with those kinds of things with kids. But for me, that sense of God's presence was always there, always cherished. And and I sort of, you know stayed in that pathway and followed it along. And um, I had some significant experiences as a kid, as a member of a youth group, retreats and, you know, camp kinds of things um, that, um, yeah, that even if I went because I didn't you know, have anywhere else to go, you know, <laughs> although in my case, I usually, you know, I enjoyed going. And mm -hmm. so it was, um, it was easy for me when I began to have a sense of call to do this vocationally. Um, again, we often hear the story about, you know, the person that resisted and no, I can't do that. And I'm not worthy and, you know, all that stuff. And again, you know, I, I didn't have a sense of worthiness, but it was like, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, I had always loved 
I had always loved uh, being in the youth group. I did not love Sunday school. <laughs> we had a children's Sunday school, but I loved youth group. And uh, um, so, you know, that growing sense of do this, I, you know, I was like, okay, I'd love to. And I was a youth minister to start with, as a matter of fact. Oh, no kidding. And, no, did uh, you go and, to uh, did you go to college? Did you go to college with youth I went ministry to college, in mind? Uh, yeah, I went to Auburn University, and right out of college, I served as a youth minister for two years before I went to seminary. Okay. And when I went to seminary, I went to still be a youth minister. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I hadn't been there long um, when I began, you know, again, some things opened up. You know, there were other ministry possibilities and uh, avenues for me to consider. And by the time I was finishing the MDiv, um, I, you know, had had lots of encouragement to consider doing a PhD. And at the time that I was doing it, there still weren't many women who were um, doing that kind of study. And that was like waving a red flag from the book, you know, don't tell me I can't do it. And uh, um, so uh, I was, uh, you know, I love the idea. And, and part of what was interesting, I mentioned that I had done this emerging thing. And, and again, which doesn't mean everything was rosy. I don't want to give that impression. Mm. Um, you know, I, I struggled to make sense of a number of things that happened to me along the way and took my fist at God more than once, but, um, but continued on this path. And then all of a sudden, when I was a grad student, I could finally name, I want to do this. I want to do a PhD in New Testament. I want to teach New Testament. And now all of a sudden I might not be able to, because getting into PhD programs is actually quite hard. And what if they get in? What if I don't do well? on the entrance exams. What if okay. I don't do well so on the me, interview to, to get in? So let me so, interrupt you. So here you are uh -huh. in your early twenties and you can actually put a name to the calling vocation profession. And, but with it comes great uncertainty. Yes. Oh, yes. What a, what a, a, a tense, intense filled state of being to be in. Well, yeah, and, and it was it was that. It was, again, what if I don't get into the program? Mm -hmm. Getting in, what if I can't pass comprehensive exams? Because they're awful. Um, that's like almost legalized torture. And then um, finishing, um, as it turned out, the job market for PhDs is, is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and what if I didn't get a job? Uh, what if I didn't get an opportunity to do this thing that I felt very called to do? So, you know, again, I, I've sort of painted this, you know, journey as kind of an emerging journey, which I think is fair, but I don't want to say it was, you know, easier. Um, you know, I was eating bonbons along the way or something. <laughs> I don't even know what a bonbon is. I don't know why everybody uses that. <laughs> so I have to. We have to come up with something that I actually love and uh, stick <laughs> instead of bonbons. But. Well, now now you could just pick um, pretty much any sweet off the shelf is expensive. <laughs> your right. your bag of Oreos. <laughs> That's right, Krispy Kreme donuts. You okay. know. <laughs> <laughs> so. so, 
the the path was um you have this calling you have affirmation you have a profession that you're exploring that you want to fulfill uh but with it comes the uncertainty so let's talk about uh kind of maybe people that were put in your path that uh, were encouraging to help you along the way and also throw in some words of wisdom for the next person who has an emerging faith journey, uh, what you would impart uh, to them. Granted, their journey, their path is going to be a little bit different, but at least help them avoid those discouraging places where you and I both know a lot of great people who've check some of those, but then just hadn't quite finished the mark, at least in terms of, um, um, PhD work. Right. Or, or maybe they did, but then uh, find themselves in another field. Right. And I have, I have friends who, um, who finished and well, some who didn't finish and then some who did and, um, and, and they had to figure out other kinds of paths because, a door for teaching, you know, didn't open for them. So, you know, I don't, boy, kind of words of wisdom. I don't know about that. I'll, have to, I'll let that one around the back while I, I answer okay. the first part of that. People who were a part of that, a part of my journey. Um, you know, I had great friends. And, you know, we live in a time, <clears throat> I heard this, I heard this guy say once, um, it's been a number of years ago uh, in an interview on television. I couldn't even tell you beyond that what it was. But he was talking about the ways in which culturally, again, we tend to focus on the great loves of our life. You know, all the love songs and music, you know, for example, um, the you know romance novels are like a multi-million dollar business, the romantic comedies, you know, for movies. And he said, and you know, the reality is that those kinds of relationships most of us come and go but very often friends are there for really long periods of time through the up and ups and downs and all of that and I thought you know that's really true mm-hmm. and I, I decided that day I was never going to take my friends for granted um, and and I've, I had great friends who were supportive um, during those years when I was trying to um, not so much to figure it out but to live through the what ifs what if it doesn't work? What if I don't get in? What if um, what if I can't get through comprehensive exams? What if I don't get a job? Um, and so the what ifs were hard, you know, yeah. and it was a really scary um, part of that journey. And I had friends, you know, who held my hand and were encouraging and who listened to me rant and rave. And so I, I don't uh, I, boy, I don't take friends for granted. And I um, I hope. You know, that that was an important lesson for me to learn. And uh, don't take your friends for granted, TJ, uh, as, as going, you know, through. But there's that. And then there were also the mentors and teachers, you know, that I had. Um, among the most significant um, was Molly Marshall, who was professor of theology at the seminary where I was. And again, in such, she was the very first woman to have ever been hired on the theology faculty. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, that kind of time in, in history. And Molly, um, she, you know, she was in my middle 20s. She was probably in her middle 30s. So she wasn't, you know, she already accomplished, you know, you know, this and was this professor. And 
Um, I just, you know, I thought the world of her, and I had a moment. I had a moment. I, you'll hear me. You may hear me say <laughs> I had a moment. You know, several, several different times. But I was in the middle of my dissertation, um, and uh, for those who may not know, uh, a dissertation is the last part of a PhD, and it's essentially a book. Um, and it and there are a whole lots of stuff. It has to be just so, and it's um, it's it's a it's a challenge, uh, you know, to, to get, you know, to get through one. And I was kind of in the middle of mine. So I had written and, and, and we're talking 370 or so pages. So in the middle of that is, you know, I've written 160 or 70 or something like that. And I met with my dissertation supervisor, whom I love to this day, think the world of, but he pointed out I had these two chapters. Um, and at this point, I I, had, I think I was in the fourth chapter, but um, the fourth chapter was a lot better than the third chapter. And and so, you know, he wanted me to talk with him about why the fourth chapter was so much better. Why, what what was I doing? What was my thinking or something? And I don't know if I've got the exact, it may not have been third, fourth. I don't remember now, mm -hmm. but you get the idea. Yeah. And in the course of that conversation, I began to realize what the problem was with, with this other work. And that was the good news. Uh, the bad news was that meant I was going to have to go back and redo that work that had gone to this point. And I walked out of his office just, you know, like I'd been run over by a truck. Right. And for context, this, this is what you're eating, drinking, dreaming. I mean, this is, I, it, this is your all consuming, uh, process, especially at this point. So you, you've got your outline, you're halfway through and to know that you're going to have to go back and, and rework, not just paragraphs, but chapters. Yes. And still had the other half to do right. that was so so instead of having one mountain to climb you know yeah. the rest of the dissertation i now had two you know <laughs> and i had to go redo this and still had this to write and it it felt bigger than i could do um i was you know i was tired i was tired of being a student you know i was tired of living on how students live um you know i was I was just done. And for about a week, I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't make sense out of anything. It was, it was a, um, I did a lot of staring, you know, at a, you know, computer screen, you know, kind of, you know, like this. Yeah. And finally, and for whatever reason, I remember it was a Tuesday night and I remember that it was a, about 10 PM. Because, and I guess that stuck because normally you don't call a professor at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night, you know, but I did. I called Molly. I mentioned Molly Marshall's my professor, and I called Molly on Tuesday night. And I called, first thing I said was, I'm sorry for calling you so late. And, you know, she was, I guess she knew I wouldn't have called her if it weren't important, <laughs> you know, like that. Right. And she, so she was like, what is it? Tell me what it is. And I told her, I said, you know, here's the situation. And I said, and I feel like I'm never going to finish. I can't, it's too big. I can't do this. I'm never going to finish. I'm never going to get a job. I'm never going to get a chance to do this thing I want to do. And I just sort of, you know, 
I almost I almost want to say vomited all that out. <laughs> I've been, you know, stressing over for a week. Mm. And and she let me do all that, get all that out. And then she said, in calmest voice to this day I've ever heard, she said, You must remember that the one who called you is faithful. And she said some other things, you know, but that's that was the piece I needed to hear. Mm. And I, I just I could feel the tension just, you know, run out of my body, you know. Um, and I don't know how long I was on the phone with her. It wasn't terribly long, but when I hung up, I went to sleep the first time in a week. Oh, wow. And uh, and the next morning I got up and got started on the work I needed to do to complete this thing that I had begun. And um, boy, that's, you know, I have said that to other students since then, me now being sort of in Molly's role. Mm. And I have said, you must remember, the one who called you is faithful. And uh, I have clung to that uh, all of my all of my journey, you know, for sure. And I can hear Molly's voice. All right. To play the devil's advocate, just for fun. I think as your former student, the timing would be important for me to be able to hear that. Like if you would share that with me, I might throw it right back at you going, I already know that, but it isn't, it isn't, uh, I'm not there yet. Or, that may not be the the thing you need to hear in that particular moment, which puts a lot of responsibility on the person who's in the pastoral role to be listening very deeply. What is it, you know, in that moment? Um, you know, sometimes somebody needs to be uh, to be given very um, warm and positive and encouraging words like you know molly gave to me and sometimes you know you almost need the um olympia dukakis and moon you know what was the name moon, what was it? where she goes snap out of it you know like that i mean sometimes you know, that's the word you need to hear <laughs> let's go you know snap out of it i don't know and, which is funnier the the dukakis <laughs> reference or uh or, or that you're dating yourself. <laughs> I know, isn't that awful? I, I really need to stop, right? <laughs> so, um, that's a scary thought, how I can do that these days, by the way, without without even any effort, but uh, there's that. But yeah, I, but you're exactly right. Um, that was, for me, absolutely the most um, life-giving word I could hear in that moment. Right. Right. But in another moment, like you said, I might have been like, you know, heck with that. I need I need help here. You know, but then, boy, in that moment, that was the word I needed to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did originally ask you that question, like terms of, you know, uh, of wisdom. Um, there There is that element of humility and that awareness of the person or persons that you're with. Where are they coming from? And are you providing a, a true, genuine listening ear right. to be able to gather a sense of where they're coming from? Yeah, I have uh, on a couple of occasions said something to someone that was 
uh, let's say, very challenging. <laughs> and almost the minute it comes out of my mouth, then it goes, oh, should I have said that? <laughs> you know, that's a little terrifying. Um, I'm laughing because I can I can hear it as a student of yours. <laughs> and that may not, I'm not asking for the situation, but that's why I'm chuckling. I was like, Oh, okay. I could hear that as a student. What, what did you turn in, TJ? What? <laughs> this is not your best. <laughs> uh, fortunately, TJ, I'm not sure I ever had to say that to you. So, um, <laughs> so that no. was, I'm glad for that. I appreciate you not putting me in that position. I do not like to do that. <laughs> so, good for you. <laughs> I don't remember that either. Um, <laughs> if it was there, we'll both let it go and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> How did you get connected to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? I'm not a native. Um, <laughs> you probably, you know, knew that already. Uh, others didn't. I was reared Southern Baptist, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and I, I a very curious part of of my journey is I, I reared Southern Baptist. My parents were Southern Baptists. My grandparents were Southern Baptists. My great-grandparents were Southern Baptists, as far as I know. Mm. Um, uh, and I, I used to say it, it, that I was Southern Baptist the way a Jew was a Jew. It was almost my ethnicity, <laughs> right? And, um, and so I went to seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Did the MDiv and PhD there. I was there a long time. Uh, went there in 82 and graduated with the PhD in 90, 89. Um, I stayed there uh, through until the summer of 90. And in all that time, I, I got to seminary at a, about the time that the fundamentalist takeover of the seminary had gotten into full swing. Mm -hmm. And the whole time that I was there, that was constantly in the background. And Southern was not fundamentalist. It was a place that encouraged people. They didn't use the language of being open, curious, and willing to be surprised. But that was the ethos. That was the um, approach, you know, um, among faculty members. Um, and so it was a it was a it was a marvelous place for me. Again, to broaden, as I, I said earlier, that when I got there, I found out there was all this whole world I didn't know anything about, <laughs> whether it was literally the world or the New Testament or theology or uh, psychology of religion. I mean, I, I got introduced to the mystical tradition uh, in the Christian church. I didn't even know it existed. You know, in my Southern Baptist church life, that was not part of the conversation. <laughs> and, you know, so... So this was a, a really, you know, rich and, and uh, widening, deepening environment, you know, for me. And let me interrupt you just for a minute for uh, context. And you can flesh this out a bit more. So the um, Southern Baptist in the, the 80s, um, there was kind of a, from a theological and academic perspective, a shift more towards a conservative nature uh, so that there was a more kind of a, a mono thought throughout the denomination in in its teachings and preparations for those in in ministry. It 
that that was what ended up ended up happening. It it was the in the eighties and the early nineties that was being resisted, and so it had not yet become as it is now, which is the ethos of the of the SBC is. Not just conservative. I, I would actually call it fundamentalist, and and I make a distinction between being conservative and being fundamentalist because conservatives can absolutely be open, curious, and willing to be surprised. Um, they have a particular theological outlook, but within that, this, you know, they may well, you know, have that kind of you know approach to things. Fundamentalists, not so much. Um, they've got everything figured out already, and this becomes. Um, the truth with a capital T, and everybody has to toe the line. That's sort of the nature of fundamentalism, whether it's Christian, whether it's Jewish, whether it's Muslim fundamentalists. Um, in the you know the Taliban, you know, is the horrific example of Muslim fundamentalists. But um, but that's sort of the nature of fundamentalism. And so, there's, I don't think there's any question that Southern Seminary, when I was there, could be described as conservative. By the way, the charge. Uh, made by those who didn't like Southern, and they didn't like Southern Seminary precisely because it encouraged people to be open, curious, and willing to be surprised. And so, um, so it was it was very it, it, no question conservative, but this was the ethos. And so, um, there was something ludicrous about fundamentalists um, who were attacking someplace like Southern Seminary because it was too liberal. Because for most people, you know, in you know, in the larger you know U.S. context, if you talk about Southern Baptists being liberal, if they know anything about you know church traditions, they would just laugh out loud. You know, Southern Baptists are not liberal. And I would go, well, no, they're not, and they really aren't now. But that was you know the language that got used. You know, liberal became a like a four-letter word. You know, in those days, <laughs> got you know thrown around and stuff. And I decided while I was there that I was going to stay and be a part of the resistance, if, if it's okay to use that language, for as long as I could. But I, I determined early on I was not going to be a casualty of this war. And about 90, about 1990, um, the fundamentalists had, um, was, were on the verge of having a two-thirds majority on the board of trustees at Southern, which meant they really could flip it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I thought, I'm done here. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I said, I'm not going to be a casualty of this war. And about that time, uh, I was had just finished the PhD, had degree in hand, was job hunting. And um, Bethel College called me. And they had had uh, their, one of their professors of religion, they had two. And one of them, uh, Peter Hobby, had taken a job. He was, he was PCUSA. And Peter had taken a position at, an, at a PCUSA college and left, and he did it fairly late in the year. So they were kind of scrambling um, and uh, to fill that position. And, and I had applied for the same position Peter had applied mm. that, that he was hired for. And um, so what happened was the dean at Bethel called that school and said, who was next on your list? And, 
the guy there asked, does it have to be Cumberland Presbyterian? And, you know, and the dean said, not necessarily. And he got my name and he called. <laughs> I had actually, by that point, had left the SBC and had become PCUSA. Uh, I had served in a PCUSA church as the associate pastor for about three years during my graduate school program. And I loved that church. And so I had joined that church mm. officially. So anyway, the dean called and he and I had a long conversation over the phone and it was a really wonderful conversation. I knew nothing about Cumberland Presbyterians. <laughs> so I hung up. I went to the library. Um, we had the confession of faith in the library. I checked it out, took it home and read it. And I was really amazed by it. It's it's a beautifully written document, just beautifully written. Um, and, it, and it has... Um, very distinct parameters. It's it is not remotely anything goes, but it allows for great um, conversation within those parameters. It allows, in my mind at least, to be open, curious, and willing to be surprised. And so, I had actually had what had had questions about ordination in the PCUSA church. I wasn't sure I could do that. Um, as a Southern Baptist, um, and, and, you know, I was taught religious liberty and um, freedom of conscience and those kinds of things. And the idea I was going to have to promise um, loyalty to the Book of Order of the Presbyterian Church, I was like, I don't know if I can do that, you know. And Cardinal Presbyterians didn't have that. And... Having been a part of a huge denomination and seeing how little impact you could have, the idea of being a part of a smaller denomination actually had great appeal for me. So when Bethel called and then said, the only thing is you'd have to, you're, we want you to be chaplain. If you're going to do that, you'd have to be Cumberland Presbyterian. And so I, I checked it out and I said, I can do this. And um, ended up, um, you know, going under care of West Tennessee Presbytery. And uh, Jim Ratliff was the chair of the committee at that time, uh, who became, um, a, a, you know, a good person for me and a, a good leader. Margaret McKee, it, the, the late, wonderful Margaret McKee, was on that committee and became a significant mentor in terms of being Cumberland Presbyterian. They required that I study Cumberland Presbyterian history and polity. And so uh, I drove to Memphis uh, every other week for a while and met with uh, Dr. Marilyn Hudson and learned. Cumberland Presbyterian History and Theology, and was ordained uh, in October of 1991 um, while still chaplain at Bethel College. So, um, and along the way, what I found out was I was wrong when I said that I was Southern Baptist, like a Jew was a Jew, it was almost my ethnicity. <laughs> I found out I was wrong. Um, that what I am is fundamentally I'm Christian. And, um, and the other piece, is uh, hopefully uh, a supportive and and rich and time-tested tradition, but fundamentally, what I am is Christian, and um, and that was an important lesson for me to learn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as I was, you know, as I was taking this journey, but I've always been very grateful for Cumberland Presbyterians to welcome me in. Um, I remember very much the very first. Um, minister's 
uh, 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 it used to happen in January. I don't think it happened. I don't think they do it anymore. The pastors uh, uh, meet anyway, denomination wide, and it came to Bethel the first year I was at Bethel. Uh, like a ministers' this, conference. Yeah, I guess it's just simply that the ministers' conference. I was trying to make it more complicated than that for some reason. <laughs> But um, a crowd of the younger, uh, my age folks, Mark Brown, Kip, um, I'm going to pull Kip's name out. He's the chair of the board. But um, uh, Kip, Kip Rush. Yeah, Kip. Thank you, Kip Rush, Jay, Earhart Brown, uh, Chuck Brown, um, a whole bunch of those folks, you know, Eleanor, you know, and, and stuff who came and found me. And, and they said, okay, we've heard about this new person who's the chaplain at Bethel. We need to check you out. And it was fabulous. You know, we went to West and I got to meet all of them and, mm -hmm. and, and they've been, you know, we're supportive and have been all these years. And now Kip is the chair of the board at the seminary. Right? <laughs> so who would have thought that way back in that day? So, um, so yeah, I've, I've always been very grateful Colin Presbyterians for uh, welcoming, welcoming me in after what had become a very painful experience in the tradition that really nurtured my faith. I mean, how sad is that, right? Um, they helped make me who I am. And then one day said, we don't want you anymore. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's a tough experience. And here you've been in Cumberland Presbyterian most of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my adult life. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Didn't see that one coming, you know, in the, <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> Well, you have been at uh, Memphis Theological Seminary. It'll be 31 years this spring. How has the landscape of theological education changed? How long are we going to be here teaching? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'll narrow it down. Um, how has it changed to where we are equipping um, women and men for ministry uh, with full confidence and uh, as they enter into those vocations? It, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything about the landscape of theological education that hasn't changed over the course of those years. Um, and part, part of the reason that theological education has changed is because the church is changing. Um, and, you know, if we are preparing um, men and women to answer calls from God to serve in church and world, and that's actually our language, to serve church and world, and both the church and the world are changing around us rapidly, then the way we do theological education is bound to change. It has to change. And, and in ways, there's no way you could have anticipated this. And in fact, we're in the middle of change mm. and we don't know, you know, what it's going to look like a decade out from now, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and maybe, um, maybe change isn't the right word. Maybe it's adapt. How, how is our uh, theological education adapting to the needs of the church, of the local church? Maybe that's a better question as I as I pose it and maybe it's not maybe we're in a space to where we are trying to articulate the question to begin with well and, and I think I think that last part is probably more accurate because I think it's fair to say 
that as the church is changing, we don't know what the church is going to look like in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is, I mean, you're well aware of all the statistics and the decline of primary, you know, denominational traditions and the growth of people, uh, of, of the category of folks who identify themselves as none. You know, that's become one of the almost cliche things you know, now that people talk about. And so if you don't know, is the church, in other words, is it going to need pastors as we have been um, educating and preparing pastors? Is it going to need more community organizers and activists? You know, are we going to have more um, churches engaging their neighborhoods and, and becoming more activist churches because a younger generation of folks is far more interested in doing the work of the gospel than um, than sort of hanging out within the walls of the church itself. Um, are we going to see the growth of more nonprofits, both associated with the church and doing some of that, you know, nuts and bolts work, but doing it with the support and, and leadership of the church? But that means we need folks who know about um, how you set up a nonprofit because there are legal hurdles there, you know, right and left, you know, for example. Um, so as the church itself changes, um, you know, we may we may need pastors now. You know, it used to be that that churches a certain size would have you know, a pastor and then somebody maybe doing choir and somebody doing youth and children, maybe somebody doing senior adults. Mm. And what, you know, churches may not be large enough to hire that many clergy. So you may have to have a pastor that can do more of all of that work. Whereas in the past, you know, pastors wanted primarily to preach and do pastoral care. That may not be what the future looks like. We may be educating far more by vocational pastors. How do we do that? How do we partner with um, with undergraduate institutions, for example, mm-hmm. so that we have folks who are um, able to run a small business and also, you know, pastor of the small church, uh, but do it really well, you know, with that. So. Because we don't know what the church is going to look like, it's hard to know what theological education is going to look like. So we're not just adapting, as you said, we're sort of doing it on the fly, you know, oh, as we yeah. do this. And, um, and it's, it's a tough time, to be honest. Well, I was, okay, I was going to say, it, doesn't that make it exciting, though, because it's the experimentation of being able to go, all right, so maybe the context will... Uh, in terms of ministry will be this. And so let, let's, let's take this class period or this semester and kind of focus in on, on this area where you may just be providing pastoral care, the Word and the sacraments for a season and not for a lifelong uh, commitment. Right. And, and what, what could that look like? Um, but I, I I say that as exciting. That can also, you know, the flip side of that is be very fearful for people is, oh, well, that's not what it is currently. Well, it, it is. It, it is. 
it is exciting. I'm hunting. I'm hunting my um, adjectives here. <laughs> it's exciting. It's creative, but it's also um, it's also so uncertain. So, for example, suppose we, you know, we were to create a program to prepare people to run nonprofits, and that isn't where things go. Right. And then you put a lot of resources at a time when your resources are small. Um, and 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 so you know you you go oh what do we do with it I mean in in terms of that ends up being a bad quote business decision That's you know true. and you're you know as you're trying to survive that um, we're dealing with as education is everywhere the whole issue of online stuff um, and we're doing it in terms of our teaching and learning but we're also talking about what how is that going to play in church you know what what does it mean uh, in church settings, if we're going to stream services, live stream services and stuff, so people don't have to be there, what does that even mean anymore in terms of church? It's, it's one thing if you're sick and I can't be present this Sunday, so yay, the service is available to me. Right. It's another thing. I, I went uh, recently and taught a uh, Sunday morning program at a local church in Memphis, and they had a, some folks zooming in. One of them was in Arizona. And, you know, I, I'm assuming that woman had sort of scoured the Internet, found this church in Memphis that was doing something she was interested in. And so she joined right in and they, they all said hello and how are things in Arizona, you know, <laughs> or stuff like that. But, you know, if she's sick, nobody in that group can take her soup. Yeah. You know, if 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 um, if she has, you know, has an awful has a relationship in and she's just, you know, grieving out of that, they can't go hold her hand. Yeah. They can't sit with her and, you know, and let her literally put her head on their shoulders and cry, you know? So what does what that mean? And, and, you know, and, and church is trying to figure that out. And the seminary is trying to figure out how to prepare people to serve churches that are going to be asking those kind of questions. So I believe yeah. maybe maybe now the larger question is what what is community? Right. Because you could ask that without asking, you know, what is the church? Can I have community with somebody in another state? And what will that look like? And can, is it just as good or even better than the one-on-one -on -one interaction, let's say, across a table or in a living room or, you know, in a driveway or a parking lot? Yeah, it, will that be the equivalent? And I think the answer is to be determined. It depends. Right, and and that it's the depend part that we're we're trying to figure out. Yeah, because the the data is actually in, which is that virtual digital interactions are not the same. No, and 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 people need touch. And they need physical presence. And so how do you how do you do that church now where people, you know, we, we've become a culture where we do things because it's easy and convenient, not because it's really good. For, um, <laughs> you know, I have, uh, you know, right. You know, right. That yeah. I mean, we all know that, you know, I'll, I'll just stay home and live stream the service today or at, at the seminary. My students have an option of coming to class or Zooming into class. 
And, you know, the ones that are far distant, you understand the whole Zooming thing. Mm-hmm. But I have students sometimes that are five <laughs> minutes away. <laughs> They're Zooming in the class. And I want to go, get your rear end over here, you know. And, uh, because you will probably remember the importance, not just of, of, of the being in class, but it's what happens before and after class and during break. Yeah. When you're talking with people and, you know, you, you walk out to your car talking about, can you believe Dr. Miner just said this? And, mm-hmm. you know, and you're, that conversation or who's going to lunch today or, you know, those kinds of personal interactions that are so much a part of what it means to be human. And we're losing those. I, I've thought and about so, this. I've, I've yeah. thought about this from, you know, the more local church, but. Right. Yeah, with um, like a program of alternate studies in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and at seminary, um, my experiences will be different than those that are now 20 years into the future. So <laughs> to, to say that, that, you know, since I experienced it, it must be right. But I do believe that we have to collectively, we have to be able to kind of test it. Uh, is this Zoom recording uh, the same and or better than if we were in the same room? Well, you know, for me personally, I know that it's not, but this is what's available to us. Um, but I think we have to almost experiment the individual aspect to recapture the worth of community. Yeah, and, and I would add to that Reminding ourselves to value not just what's convenient, but what is healing and renewing and and deeply satisfying. So that what what is convenient becomes a supplement. When I can't be there, I can still do this. Right. But but how how do we, for me at least, the issue of valuing and what we value really needs to sort of rise to the surface. Our dean had an interesting conversation. Uh, He was talking with some students on Zoom who were griping because so many of their parishioners had not come back to worship after COVID, but they were Zooming into the service. (laughs) And the dean said, hello. (laughs) And it hadn't even dawned on them that they were doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, with regard to their class. So, it, it raises a real interesting question. As you said, how do we define community? I'm actually not afraid of raising it. How do we define church? Yeah. You know, what does it mean for us to be church together? And, and what do we value? And then, and then here becomes this thing. If we value it, then how do we live into what we value? Because, you know, again, you know and I know that the sharpest criticism of the church is that we say this, but we do this. <laughs> you know, sure. we're a bunch of hypocrites, right? Mm. We, we all know that. And here's an opportunity for us not to be that. An opportunity to say, you know, caring about each other, knowing each other, the informal conversations you have before and after church, the, hey, who wants to go to lunch? Hmm. after church kind of things that happen, <laughs> that those things really, really matter. And so we're we're going to show up 
for those things. And not not but, but and this is going to be possible for those days when we can't. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm like you, like you said a minute ago, you were thinking off the top of your head. That's what I'm doing as well. Because this conversation is ongoing. What I do think is exciting is the conversation itself. Yeah. I think we need to be engaged in this conversation. Yeah, and, and I and I find it exciting. Also, I, I I may be cutting a lot of grace. I I often think that we collectively that maybe we we when we move we move kind of childlike clumsily, yeah. uh, and I don't mean just the Christian church. I just kind of mean as humanity, and we have found something new and shiny, and we've sort of waddled over to it because it's attracted to it. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're trying out. Can I do this on my own? In this much more convenient. I don't have to wear pants to work or what, whatever it is that right. you know, <laughs> folks need to do. I got my um, sweatpants on, right? <laughs> but, but after after that, the shininess, you know, it, it does, it's not quite as filling as we thought it might be. It won't ever go away because it does right. scratch an itch. Right. But, uh, and then we'll clumsily kind of waddle over to the, you know, off balance, you know, but our eyes are focused on whatever the new shiny thing may be again that's community and we'll leave some of that behind and we'll revisit the favorites the meaningful so i i think as a as a creation as a whole i'm cutting a lot of slack and my metaphor is just as clumsy as the baby that we are (laughs) the toddler that we are but i i think that there's a little bit of truth to that is um, we will, and we are, um, we have not lost the sense of being in the presence of another human being. There's no right. replacement for that. There really is not. And, and, and what I would add to that is that we view this exactly as a journey, mm. you know, that we don't, you know, when we went around this corner, we didn't know <laughs> that the road ahead was going to look like this. Yeah, right. And the important thing is not to stop the journey um, and, and to, to continue to, you know, so you, you know, you go down this way for a while and then you go, we need to turn here. Mm. And, and that's where and, the humility comes in though. Uh, humility is a great a, word right there. Right. To, right. to be able to go, Oh, um, we do need to make this turn. We do need to slow down or speed up or we need to, do the 180 and and right. go back to that fork in the road and kind of look right and, and go a different again. direction right maybe yeah. i think again if i can use the phrase i've used before we need to be open curious and willing to be surprised <laughs> as opposed to yeah. we've got it all figured out yeah. um and your point about humility i think is spot on and then if i would add one more thing to, to dealing with this it's the keeping in mind in terms of the church the important thing is that this is a spiritual journey. And, and how do we do gospel work? How do we join with God in God's renewing work in the world in this time in which we find ourselves? And if we can keep that, that's essentially how we, what we, you know, so I'm going to go about value. You know, what do we value? And, and if, we, if, if, we are on, if, if we honestly value the relationship with God, which, according to the New Testament, will always involve relationships with one another. Always. Mm-hmm. You cannot escape those. 
You know, there's no accident that Jesus says there are two great commandments. <laughs> you love God with all you got and you love one another. You love, you know, your neighbor as yourself. So if we keep this a spiritual journey for all of our falling by the wayside and making wrong turns, we'll come back to this place that takes us where we need to go. And so for me, that's become, you know, uppermost as I, as I look at seminary, you know, and us trying to figure out, you know, what this looks like, how, how do we continue to do this work to which all of us there feel deeply called mm-hmm. um, in a time when this is changing so rapidly, it, it really is hard to keep pace. You know, the only thing I know to do is to remind myself that the one who called us is faithful and the journey goes on and to keep, you know, that ever before me and uh, and to keep that, you know, taking those steps on that journey. However, think it, what I want to go is um, I liked seminary about 12 years ago. I really I wasn't teaching online. <laughs> I didn't, didn't have to do a learning management system. I didn't have, you know, I, I really liked it, which, by the way, is true. I really did like that. <laughs> But, you know, what's that going to do for me, you know, to, to do that, to, to scream about that? Because that's gone, you know. You know, here I am now. And and how do I, how do I continue my journey? How do I practice my vocation? How do I answer God's call in this context? Because whether I wanted to be here or not, this is where the journey is brought. And so do I journey on now or no? Right. I, and, you know, from a student's point of view, a future student's point of view is how do I gain access to those who have insight and can help prepare me for this vocation that I'm exploring? Right. And, right. So and, how do we, and that, I want to tell do, students to keep that ever in mind. Right. It's not, it's not, What's convenient or easy again, that just boy, that just comes up so often. But what is your call from God? Mm. What is this journey that you're on? What makes this journey deep and rich um, and and wide and and you know and fulfilling? and and a- ask yourself those questions going forward. Uh, and how do you how do you not only fulfill your own journey? but become part of the journeys of others. And again, I'm willing to bet that was true for you as a student, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, the, the, your classmates and those conversations in the hallways and uh, out in the parking lots. I used to crack up when I'd come out of class and little clusters in the parking lots, you know, yeah. at the seminary. And, um, and that becomes part of not just your own journey, but being a part of, uh, enhancing somebody else's journey as well. And that's part of our call. Um, you know, there's a reason we do this together. To think, that, right. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. To say that, it, to think that I would trek on my own is that, well, that's a fallacy. I mean, that, <laughs> exactly. I mean, exactly. Uh, Not even possible, probably. No. Right? No. Exactly. No, to, uh, but again, that comes back to that humility um, that, to think, oh, well, uh, the, the achievements, the accomplishments, um, and, and even the mistakes and the failures, those have never been in isolation, ever. 
and how boring it would be to not have those to share with others. Right. And nor did you get up when you'd been knocked down or recovered from a bad moment without somebody there right. who's either kicking you in the pants, if that's what you need in the moment, <laughs> or, you know, who is, you know, picking you up and, you know, cleaning your wounds and, you know, giving you some Advil and telling you, you can do this. You know, you're not, you're not quit. I mean, you've probably had, I've had people that said to yeah. me, you're not quit. You know, we're, we're going ahead. And, and that, that, that kind of takes us full circle to where we began our conversation of where do we find the New Testament, the, the intersections of the New Testament with um, uh, where we are in the 21st century. You know, they're <laughs> applying aid to an injury is not new news. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, sharing food with someone who is hungry is not a novelty. Um, Bearing one another's burdens is not, yeah, yeah that's not a new idea. Right. <laughs> right. Let's close out with a fun question. Okay. Um, what's your favorite mystery novel? Uh. I hit you with that one cold. All these questions have been cold, but I don't know why this one. <laughs> well, um, you may know because I may well have said it in class that I'm a mystery novel fanatic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, probably if I had to choose, well, it's easier for me to say who my favorite mystery novelists are. And the two of them would be Louise Penny who writes the Three Pines series, or and Laurie King, who writes Mary Russell. Um, and then, but if I had to pick favorite novel, oh wow, TJ, I'm not even sure I can. Um, but those two novelists are absolutely my favorite novelists. Uh, right. They are. They're not only they don't. It, they do mystery novels that are a they're they're puzzle like. They're not violent. They're not blood and gore, they're not, you know, that kind of nasty stuff. Sorry about my phone doing that. Um, you know, it, it's it's more puzzle-like, and, you know, this, how do you figure this stuff out? And, and then they have great characters. So for me, reading a good novel is about going and hanging out with this person, or persons, as the case may be. And and I don't want to hang out if I don't like the person. You know, so, so I don't care if it's the, the coolest puzzle ever if I don't want to hang out with the people involved I'm not going to be interested and they they write great characters you know I always think I'd like this person to be my best friend so all right well okay so let me try with another question then pertaining to the mystery what um briefly what would be like the biggest aha moment or surprise that you have read in in a novel like a like a twist like a a crime that was solved or uh, a puzzle that was unraveled or. Uh, well, it, my favorite of those, and it, and it's another of my favorite writers, but it's not going to be quite like that. What this writer does is, um, uh, and, 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 and the very first novel that kicks off the series, you don't figure this out till about halfway through, but Sherlock Holmes is actually a woman. Um, and <laughs> what she does is, there's this woman whose name is Charlotte Holmes, 
in the time of Sherlock Holmes, so when Arthur Conan Doyle did this in the late 1800s, you know, kind mm. of thing, and nobody would ever uh, hire a woman as a private detective in that time. So she invents Sherlock Holmes, but he's ill. And so nobody can meet him. And she's the mediator between them and him, though he, but she's actually the person that does all the solving. And uh, I know it's great. Her name is Charlotte Holmes. And, and she, but her brain works just like Sherlock Holmes does. You know, it's very logical and analytical and, you know, she's one, you know, like he does, you know, you can look at somebody's boots and tell everything about their life story. So that was a great twist, you know, on the, on a, you know, a classic character in, you know, in this yeah, yeah. So. Did she have her own Moriarty? Um, yes, actually she does. Um, and his name is Moriarty actually okay. in the story. And she has an assistant who is the widow of a doctor whose name was John Watson. <laughs> and her sister uh, is the one who who writes the novels that become the Sherlock Holmes novel. Um, okay. So she, her sister is the Arthur Conan Doyle kind of person, you know, like that. So it, it's perfect. I mean, it, this, it's perfect what she's done. All the pieces, you know, are there, you know, it's just, it's fabulous. So. All right. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Uh-huh. Dr. Minor, thank you for giving me your afternoon. It didn't feel like it, but you did give me your afternoon. Well, it, yeah, thank you, TJ. Thanks for the um, opportunity. Thanks for the conversation. I, I am, um, I'm somebody who enjoys good conversation mm-hmm. um, and, and believe in, in them, you know, because inevitably, you know, you, you, you have a greater connection, you know, with, mm-hmm folks when you have good conversations and I'm delighted to be reconnected with you and um and so thanks for the invitation and for allowing me to be a part so and and look best best wishes as this continues and goes forward okay I will thank you so much I I feel privileged with every guest I've been doing this for a while and it it everyone I get to know the individual better um and it, it you I sort of lose time and space and and what a privilege to be able to hear somebody's journey and then the double privilege of being able to share it you know with others so that however people listen to Cumberland Road or a podcast they can do it on their own their own time skip it stop it (laughs) whatever it is that ability but um I don't know. It's just a, it, it really is. It's a real privilege, privilege to be able to, to hear it and to be able to see the other person and it can't be repeated, but it's not like we don't ever try, right. which is kind of cool too. It was like, Oh, I have to meet with her or him again because I want to recapture that conversation or continue a conversation um, and, and build upon that momentum. I don't know. I don't even have, proper words to describe but it certainly is fun it's a privilege and i, and I enjoy doing this until i'm not supposed to do it anymore <laughs> Whenever yeah, that's that is. right that's right well yeah. good for you and and again i'm really glad to have gotten to be a part thank you so much thank you for listening to this faith journey on cumberland road if you haven't already check out the previous guest on the podcast to hear their wonderful journeys
Here, I will leave you with words from Dr. Miner's book, The Power of Story. Good stories are powerful. They touch a deep spiritual place in our lives, reminding us of who we are and from whence we have come. They help us along our way to remember what it means to be authentically human. Many of these good stories may be called sacred stories as they heed the presence of God that hides in every breath, word, sound, and silence. In doing so, they offer us a sense of resolution and truth. They also relate our failures, lacks, and losses, thus unsettling us by making us face the ragged edges of our lives. But then they sustain us with illumination and heal us. And so good stories call us to come home to ourselves. Thanks for listening.